0: Shit. Don't bullshit. 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 Uh, introduce yourself to everybody out there.
1: Uh, my name is Gary Arndt. I am a travel photographer slash blogger. Uh, traveled around the world for the last 13 years, and I live in Minneapolis, Minnesota, right one block away from a lot of the uh, riding which took place in Minneapolis.
0: Um, thanks. So um, you were saying that last night. So it's what time there now? Six thirty? Are you on East Coast time? Uh, no, I'm Central. So it's quarter to six. Right. So you're going into another night. Of, you're about to go into another night of it.
1: Yeah, the purge starts in about two hours. <laughs>
0: We're recording this uh, Sunday night, your time, Monday morning, mine. So it's the 1st of June here, 31st of May there, just for the timestamp, because God knows what's going to happen tonight. So it wasn't so bad last night. So you're you're hoping it'll be uh, a little bit subdued tonight?
1: Uh, Yeah, I just, so I just got in from a walk. I I saw on the television, there's several thousand people gathered on the freeway doing a march. That's fine, uh, you know. They're if they're there, they're they're peaceful. Um, last night there were people out, and they were for the most part peaceful, so that uh, you know really wasn't a problem. Um, but so there's a curfew in place tonight. It goes from 8, 8, eight p.m. to six a.m. And then Monday there's also going to be another curfew in place. They so the first few nights of this to give you an idea of what would happen. So everyone's seen the video of what happened at George Floyd. It was. You know horrible i i 've yet to see a person really defend uh, what happened you know any side of the political spectrum because there really isn 't anything and uh, so the the first night there were people protesting, understandable uh, and they went to the and then, and then they 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 started burning things and the question i don't know one of the questions i don 't know if you 've seen the video of the guy wearing the gas mask and the umbrella. No. but it was a white guy that was really covered up and he was the one who started breaking windows. It was at an auto parts dealership and he had nice. a wrench or a hammer. You couldn't really see his face and he just very casually break a window, break a window, break a window. And uh, that kind of started it and there's been a lot of reports of uh, you know, white people from other places, whether it's the suburbs or other states who've come here and they've, they're bringing the Molotov cocktails and, and other kind of street weapons. Um, there's been a lot of there's still kind of a fog of war as far as what's going on because everyone doesn't really know so yeah. uh, you know the initial reports were like 80 percent. i don't think that's true but it's it certainly a some percentage
0: yeah <clears throat> so what if that's true what do you think is going on there who are these people why are they coming how long does it take to get from other states to where you are how far away are you drive time from other capital cities
1: uh, from chicago to here would be an eight hour drive okay six yeah, hours milwaukee uh yeah i mean it's a big country i mean if there was a riot in sydney that you wanted to go
0: join or melbourne but there were riots right across the country. Why is somebody going to travel was uh, to get to your riot? Oh,
1: because we were the first one. so for the first three nights we were the only riot in town. so if you right. wanted to riot we were we were it and then it just kind of spread elsewhere and then talking to people in other cities, uh, they had a very they, they're seeing similar things and if you watch the news uh, that's happening here and if you if you want to actually watch it live, I recommend go to CBNS or C, uh, CBSN. And it's a national network, but they're using local affiliates. And it's very easy to watch online. You can stream it. There's no sign-up or anything. You can just just start watching. And they've been very good about getting coverage from all these different cities around the country uh, to to watch some of it. And they're using local affiliates. Um, But now, I, I think it's calmed down here. But now the question is, what the hell is going to happen elsewhere? I just saw a picture from one of my friends who lives in New York. They're now boarding up all of the storefronts um because they don't know what's going to happen and i think the lesson they learned from minneapolis is they're acting quicker for the first three nights there was no police presence in minneapolis at all so when i talk about the purge that's not quite a joke um there was nothing no there there was absolutely nothing and the first night i sort of understood it a little bit That if the police had been there it probably would have antagonized the crowd and you may have had violence where where you didn't want it Mm. um but it became problematic when people were just, they just started running wild the next two nights. Mm. And that's when the looting and the firebombing really took off. And the other thing that happened last night, in addition to calling in the national guard and uh, for people that aren't in the U S the national guard is each state kind of has a militia, and they can be called up at the national level, so they may get sent to Iraq or Afghanistan or something, but they're also used for natural disasters, things like that. So they mm-hmm. called up the entire Minnesota National Guard, as is well 15,000 people, uh, they got sent in. And then last night, store owners and property owners started to take a stand, and they were standing out in front of their properties all night. Uh, there were some people that were armed. Uh, there's a store right next to me. I walked through the parking lot, last night and uh, talked to their security guy. They hired ex-military guys with rifles to sit out there in the evening. Some property owners were just sitting on the roof of their uh, building, so they were technically not violating the curfew. Uh, just uh, There was one Native American neighborhood where evidently they set up their own roadblocks, and the police let them do that, and they, they did not allow anyone in unless they knew them and they lived there. Um, so those were the two things that I think really cut it down. Everybody was, was coming out. Uh, there was a lot of damage done to properties, but to the best of my knowledge, there were no attacks on individuals. And I think that's kind of emboldened more people to get out. And they also realized the police weren't going to help them because no one was answering 911 calls. No one, uh, there was no police presence until last night. And so they, they felt they had to do something.
0: Mm -hmm. so as a as a native of the city what what do you think's going on underneath all of this i mean uh, from a foreign perspective the way that it gets positioned to us is that there are deep social anxieties uh that have been going on from you know the, the dawn of uh, time in uh, uh, American timelines um, between the minorities, including the African Americans and Latinos obviously and others, uh, and surrounding uh, inequality in general, uh, this is obviously boiled over as a result of the death of George floyd, but that there 's a lot more going on here these are These are deep fractures in the, let's just confine it to your city or your state for now. Is that an an accurate reading from your perspective of what's going on or is there something else uh, at the bottom of this? I think that's a big
1: part of it for sure. I, I don't think you can ignore that. I think the other part of it specifically with the police is that over the last 50 years, there has been a big change in police procedure that's very different than most countries. Um, starting with the Nixon administration and the war on drugs, there was, it it started this increase in the militarization of the police, where they began to think of themselves more and more as a military force. Uh, after the cold war, it, it got accelerated when you had all of this excess military gear that ended up going to local police forces. There's a police force in Arizona. I forget which one it is. They have a belt fed 50 caliber machine gun. What in the hell do you use a weapon like? There's no conceivable reason a, a police force would ever need that other than they wanted to murder a lot of people. Um, they started getting tanks and other stuff, uh, you know, uh, no knock warrants and using um, SWAT teams when they really weren't necessary. I don't know if you've heard of the term swatting someone. Basically, no. you call the police on them. I would say, oh, Cameron Riley, he's you know, holding his children hostage. And then they'll come in with the SWAT team, and there's, you know, like a 5 to 10% chance they kill you in the mm. process, whether or not it's true. Uh, and a lot you, of this you, escalated
0: after 9-11, right? The militarization
1: yes. of the police? Because then, then it got into terrorism and every police department. They needed to have uh, all this gear. And uh, so to, to bring this back to Minneapolis, last year we had a brand new, we had an election, we got a brand new mayor. And uh, for the record, uh, Minneapolis has what's called a weak mayoral system, meaning that most of the power is really in the hands of the city council. The the mayor is kind of a figurehead. Uh, So a lot of people were saying, oh, the mayor didn't do anything. It's like, yeah, that's by design. Um, So the mayor said there was to be no more warrior training in the police department. Uh, And the warrior training is basically you're treating the um, police officers are like warriors. They're going in, they treat the civilians like enemy combatants which is why you see so many cases um, like this one where it's a, it's a minor offense, you know, nonviolent, and they go from zero to 100 immediately uh, to try to take people down because their first concern isn't public safety, it's their safety. Mm. So they're quick to shoot, they're quick to, to you know put people in holds and uh, you wind up with situations like this. And when the mayor told the police that you can't do this warrior training anymore. The police union came back and basically said, screw you, we're going to do it anyhow. To give you an idea of the power of the police force, you know, they, they, they literally have a monopoly on violence. So what do you do when you tell this organization which is supposed to be under you know the, the control of elected officials to do something and they don't do it uh, there was a law passed in the obama administration that required police departments to report any cases of uh the police killing someone or of or of injury and no one does it the police departments have just ignored it and and so what are you going
0: that was do? a federal level law or a study yes it's
1: it's a federal database and <clears throat> The the local police forces just don't do anything. And I think a lot of that is always deference. Uh, The other problems we have is that we have a system in most states where uh, people in the law enforcement system are elected. So district attorneys usually have to run for office. And every district attorney, if if that's your job, you're running on the same platform, law and order, right? And you run on your conviction rate. There's no metric for justice being done. You know, if someone is is innocent and they're brought up, you don't you don't get credit for that. So they have an incentive to curry favor with the police, which means they never charge the police or very seldom. They have every incentive to prosecute minor things, to prosecute so even if they know they were innocent, because they need to get people in jail. Um, you have the war on drugs, which increased the scope of crimes that could be prosecuted, which is why we have so many people in jail. And I think all of those things come together to to get what we have today.
0: You've traveled the world more than most people. You've spent the last, what, 10 years? Uh, 2007 is when I started, yeah. so 13 years. And you you travel, except for COVID, uh, you travel almost constantly during that time.
1: Uh, First nine years, I was on the road full-time, and now I travel about, half the year usually. I got in a trip to Portugal and, and Arizona this year before it all started.
0: So uh, like I had Chrissy on last night talking about her perspective as somebody who's lived out of the country for nearly 11 years. Your perspective is interesting obviously because you've, you've, got, you've had exposure to, even though it's, it's obviously fleeting, you're traveling, you're not living there, but you, you have a much broader range of exposure to other countries can you tell me from your experience how is america different from other countries that you've been to in regards to this level of i don't know tension and anxiety obviously there are plenty of countries in the world where there's um you know similar or greater levels of social tension um but let's just talk about developed western countries what's what's happening in america that isn't happening in australia i know you've spent quite a lot of time in australia is explain it to me as an as an idiot foreigner
1: Part of it is our history. And part of it is the unique makeup. So I hear a lot of people that say, you know, they'll hear a study on how the the Finnish education system is so good. And they say, well, we need to do what the Finns do. And then we will have the results of Finland. And I'm always like, no, we won't. Because they have something we will never have. They have classrooms full of Finnish kids. And we don't. And a lot of that is just a cultural thing, right? You have... You grow up, and your parents, and it's the culture you live in, and a lot of that. If you were to change the system in Finland, I think you'd wind up with the exact same results. And the difference between I, there's a lot that's similar about the U.S. and Australia. I think if you if you compare us like to our the parents in England, we're more of a frontier mentality. You know, we have Canada, you have New Zealand. We kind of shit on them both. Um, so there's a sort of a bit of wildness that we have that maybe you know some of the other. British places don't have, uh, but we have very different histories. Uh, we're a little older, uh, the, the issue of slavery, and then the post-World War II um, trajectory of the country has been very different, where we were kind of thrust into this position of, you know, we were isolationists for so long, and then now we, we kind of were the, the power after World War II, and especially mm-hmm. after the Cold War, and I'm not sure it's, it, it fits us very well, there was something I always heard about France is that they have the intestinal fortitude to be a colonial power, but they just don't have the means to do it. And the United States is just the opposite. We have the, um, the means and ability to pull it off, but we just never had the, the, the culture for it. Uh, you know, we tried it a little bit at the beginning of the 20th century with like the Philippines and, and Cuba and stuff. And it, yeah, we just didn't do it very well and we gave up on it right away. Um, but I think you look at those, uh, the closest thing Australia would have to the US, I think would be the Aboriginal population. Um, and I think, both in terms of the, the the size of the population, the distribution of the population, and uh, some of the history, it makes it very different than, say, mm. African Americans in the U.S.
0: Mm. Well, to give people a perspective, I think the African American population in the U.S. is roughly thirteen percent, somewhere between thirteen and fourteen. About there, I yeah. Think. The Indigenous Australians are roughly one percent of the population here. Um, That's about so, what
1: Native Americans are in the US. Right. One to
0: 2%. And, you know, they weren't brought here uh, under duress by slavery like your Native Americans. They were already here. They were never enslaved like your Native Americans, but they were treated horribly for, not just by the original British settlers, but, and I like to point that out that they were British, um, but uh, in the subsequent generations, well after Australia became an independent country in 1900 or 1901 um you know the the aboriginals were treated despicably and still today i mean we we've been throwing a lot of money at them for decades now but not in any way that's uh, really helped them as a people and it's very hard to undo the uh, damage the generations of damage that's been done to a people over you know, 150 200 years just by throwing some cash at it
1: i'd like to point out i forget which podcast of yours it was but you were going on a rant about how the british still have a monarchy and i wanted to yell out and say their queen is your queen
0: no <laughs> No. Yeah, it is. She's the Queen of
1: Australia. No, on the money.
0: Yeah, well, yeah. You you had a vote and you you turned (laughs) it down. Uh, It's a very embarrassing, Gary. We don't want to talk about that. Grow some balls and be a republic. (laughs) Hey, there were plenty of us, me included, who voted for the republic, but the uh, Prime Minister at the time, John Howard, uh, managed to skew the whole thing in a way that he scared most people off.
1: One of the reasons I heard that it didn't pass is because there was no formal plan for what would come next. Here's what you do. Two consuls every year. (laughs) That's the basis of the
0: Republic. Yeah, that worked well. Yeah, for a little while. Until it didn't. Yeah. yeah. Um, Okay, but let's get back to the, you know, okay, the history, I get all of that. And everyone always talks to me about, well, America's different. And, you know, we had a civil war and, we won our freedom through a revolution and frontier mentality and all this kind of stuff. But okay. So we it's 2020. Um, why? Well, let's talk about the path forwards, I guess that can help put this in context. Like what's from your perspective, how does America get through this? What are the, what are the steps that need to take? I mean, it just seems like these sorts of riots have been going on since the sixties, very least. Um, and you just keep kicking the can down the road. It doesn't seem to have been addressed, the fundamental problems here.
1: So this is what I think. I think, you know, every time this happens, there's there are protests and marches and a lot of slogans, but there's very little in the way of actionable demands other than prosecute the cops. And I think there needs to be a systematic change in how policing is done across the country. Um, and this notion that the police are at war with people and, you know, if. if Assume for the sake of argument that uh, what happened in Minneapolis, that the guy was actually guilty of what he was accused of, just, just for the sake of argument. He passed a $20 counterfeit bill. Uh, what should have happened is the police should have knocked on the door of his car, said, hey, buddy, do you mind if I talk to you for a second? You know, and this could have easily been resolved. Uh, even if he did pass a counterfeit note, he probably didn't create it. You know, just because you pass it doesn't mean you're in the business of of printing notes. Uh, It all could have been resolved probably quite simply. And the attitude which causes the police to escalate things, that has to change. And it has to do with training. It has to do with, um, you know, the, the cop that did this doesn't live in Minneapolis. And that's a very common thing in law enforcement in the U.S. where you don't live in the city that you're protecting. He lives out in the suburbs. At a minimum, I think you should live in the community that you're gonna be a police officer. That way, but people aren't afraid of you and you aren't afraid of them. That there's this lack of trust, both between police and and civilians and vice versa. I'm a middle-aged white guy. And even I don't like dealing with the police. Mm. I was talking to one of my friends last night, he's black and we were talking, I'm like, yeah, the the reason I know it's an issue with black people is because cops are dicks to me. And if they're dicks to me, then they really got to be fucking dicks to you. Mm. And I, I, everybody I know kind of has bad experiences with the police, even though I think African-Americans have it far worse.
0: Mm. Well, I read a stat yesterday. I think uh, African-Americans in Minneapolis have twice as much chance of being killed by a cop as white people, even though they're a very small percentage of the population.
1: I, I'd believe that. Uh, I'm thinking of all the cases I know of where there's been a killing by a police in Minneapolis and they're not a ton uh, over the years. Uh, You know, it does happen. Uh, There was one woman who, a white woman who was killed by the police, but the other ones have been black, yeah. And they're not a majority of the population. I wanna say it's maybe 20% of the population in Minneapolis, St. Paul. And for those who don't know, there are two cities here that border each other and they're the twin cities. St. Paul is the capital of Minnesota. Minneapolis is like the financial hub. And each city itself is not actually that big. Minneapolis is only about 350,000 people. St. Paul is a quarter million people. And then there's a ring of suburbs, several of which have 100,000 people. So the whole metro area is about 1.2 to 1.5 million people. But the city itself is not as big as other metropolitan areas. But you kind of have to look at the whole area.
0: It's like the Gold Coast.
1: The uh, Cold Coast is right next to Brisbane, right?
0: I mean, no, it's an hour's you know. drive away, an hour and a half. Yeah.
1: Was it Surfer's Paradise that's next to Cold Coast or whatever? Or-
0: yeah, it's kind of part I- of the Gold Coast. But yeah. Um, okay, well, that's interesting. It's not not one of the biggest cities. But getting back to you know the path forwards, okay, so the police violence – Seems to be the thing that always sends these situations um, topples them over the edge, and the, the protests and the riots break out. But surely there's more to be done here. There are more systemic issues that uh, go well beyond the police violence. There's the I don't know, just the the, the inequality, the economic inequality, the 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 racism, um, just the the general. Uh, wealth inequality between the 1% and everybody else in the U.S.? Do you think these are issues that have to be addressed before these things stop, even if the police violence was taken care of, that the country would erupt over these other issues?
1: Yes. Um, I don't know if the wealth of the Bill Gates and the Mark Zuckerbergs of the world are going to do much on the street level. Um, but there's an the bigger issue is someone if they have an african American sounding name is less likely to get a loan they're less likely to uh, get a job interview uh, things like that uh, repeatedly crop up and those are social things i think and and social issues are always a bit more tricky because you're you're changing people's hearts and minds you can 't just pass a law uh, I mean, I suppose for some of these things, you could pass a law if it was uh, for a loan or something where you just had some sort of algorithm that was independent of, of you know, who the person was or their name. Mm. Um, but yeah, I mean, th- there are certainly other issues.
0: kind of reminds me of I, when I hear criticism of uh, places like Cuba and um, after decades of the Castro rule people say well there's still um, homophobia very rampant in Cuba and I remember in Fidel's quasi-autobiography that came out um, 20 years ago he talked a lot about that and he said yeah look we we we've tried to get rid of that but it's deeply embedded in this uh, Catholic population homophobia and we've We've tried and, and, and we continue to try but this you know it's it's a very long-term uh, problem that we're dealing with. Um, and I think about that in the US. And I was saying to Chrissy yesterday like you had eight years of a black president. what what changed as a result of that? Was there anything that the Obama administration was able to do in its eight years that, healed these deep scars in American society about racism or the, the disenfranchisement of the African-American population or were they unable to really get their hands around it?
1: I, I can't think of anything that changed dramatically. I
0: mean, the thing is, if
1: you're in the top 1% of African-Americans, you, you live a good life, right? You uh, can get a good, decent education and uh, you know, become president or whatever. Uh, so institutional racism is a lot harder in the U S simply because no one wants to come out. You know, the the type that you saw in the sixties where George Wallace was on the steps saying, we're not going to, you know, let black people, we will want, you know, separation forever. Uh, That Mm. kind of stuff does Mm. not fly, but it's the more uh, hidden stuff. That's going to be a bigger issue. Mm. And Mm. I don't know, you know, what you do about that. I, I, there's a lot of people that read into stuff in elections, and I always tend not to, to read too much into it because they go, oh, we had Obama, and then we had Trump, and there was a big switch. It's like, not, not really. Uh, he barely won. I mean, he barely won. I think people forget that. 70,000 votes swing a few ways in three states, you know, half a percent. You have mm-hmm. a different outcome, and we have a whole different narrative,
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, which is why it, I think it, he's going to lose.
0: But he shouldn't have. He shouldn't have even been a contender. I mean, it's it's saying uh, a lot about the state of American democracy that you have a guy like this that even is in the running for uh, the presidency or any elected position, <laughs> let you, alone uh,
1: Australia. This one. Said, You've had guys like this. You know, people. Oh, who? Have a, uh, who was uh, the PM? Who was kind of like a Tony Abbott? No, it's like a just sort of a plain talking um, bloke.
0: Oh, uh, Hawk, Bob Hawk. Yeah, Bob Hawk had before he became prime minister had been a union leader, the head of our um, biggest union here for decades. He was a he was a political operative for decades. He wasn't some rich douchebag who became.
1: No, but there's this. uh, There's an attraction I think people have. You know, most politicians—they you—you know—the stereotype is they do double talk. They'll talk without saying anything. They never want to sure. take a position. And Trump, whatever you want to say about him, was definitely not that. Right? Sure. He Said stuff. He was willing to piss people off, and I pe- think people found that refreshing. And there's always been this: oh, we need someone from the out—an outsider—to come in, and they—they uh, they got it good and hard. And- but
0: his—but his public persona—I don't know who he is in real life behind the scenes, but his public persona for decades has been rich, rich, arrogant douchebag. That's the Trump brand. And I also think, you know, the two
1: figures in American political history that had the lowest, uh, approval ratings were Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. And he runs against anybody. You know, the reason why Bernie Sanders did so well in the primaries in 2016 was because he ran against Hillary Clinton. And everyone expected, Oh, 2020, he's going to do great. And then he got his ass handed to him by Biden. And uh, one of the former my former debate students who's a, uh, he was the chief of staff for Amy Klobuchar's campaign, uh, sent out a tweet like, you know, I think we forgot that it wasn't the power of Bernie Sanders. It was more Hillary Clinton that explained success in 2016 and you take Hillary Clinton out of the picture, and that's why he didn't do as well this year, because it was a protest vote against the people that, that didn't like her, and, you know, Biden just crushed him this year, and uh, I, I pay pretty close attention to, like, polling trends. You know, Trump has not been anywhere close up to 50 percent since his inauguration day in terms of approval, and it's been incredibly steady. If you look at approval ratings of U.S. presidents, they, they, they swing dramatically sometimes. Like Bush had an approval rating of 90% at one point right after 9-11. And then it sunk down to like 35%, you know, incredibly low. And Trump's has been in this low 40s with very little variation. And all of the polling they've done between him and Biden, again, there's been almost no variation. So I think everyone's made up their mind already. You either you either love him or you hate him and, and everyone knows how they're gonna vote. There's very little. I think the best thing Biden could do is, is just do nothing. Shut up, don't debate him. Just send out pleasing, you know, non-offensive things every so often. And that's all he has to do and just let Trump hang himself.
0: Small target strategy. But um, what do you think the chances are that uh, Trump's going to do something to uh, prevent or disrupt an election?
1: I don't think he's going to disrupt it. I don't think that would fly. Um, He will, however, and he did this last time he will set the stage and he's already doing it now with the months beforehand saying, Oh, it was fixed. Oh, there's been irregularities. You know, there's so much cheating. Um, from, from what I understand is he did not think he was going to win in 2016. No one did. He was shocked that he won. His plan was to use the election really as brand building. Mm -hmm. And then he would use his loss to go start a television channel. He was going to start the Trump channel
0: and I think Riles. that's
1: that's what he's going to do. Um, yeah. And he will use his loss as a grievance to, mm-hmm. uh, which is why you're also starting to see him criticize Fox News. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's used Fox News up to this point and then he'll turn on Fox News and he'll hire Sean Hannity or whatever for, for one of his slots. And then every mm-hmm. night, because there's no, every most presidents when they're done pretty much just sink into the, the background. You never hear from him again that much. He is not going to do that at all. He is going to be on television every night. He's going to be tweeting and he's going to make life hell for uh, Biden. If he wins, he He can't not be in the spotlight.
0: Well, I still am expecting to see him declare martial law at some point here, but we'll see. I
1: don't know if we have a, uh, a system for, for actually declaring martial law nationwide in the U S uh, it could be done in the event of emergency in a given state or a given area. Uh, you know, there was talk about that happening in Minneapolis, but I don't. I don't think it could happen. And here's the other thing: is look at polling data for Trump support amongst uh, the military. It has dropped dramatically because a lot of the officials that he's hired as. Uh, uh, you know, his, his security advisors and people like that, he was thrown under the bus. These were high-ranking generals who had a lot of respect. And every time something goes bad, he blames it on the military. You know, and a lot of stuff he said about um, McCain, you know, oh, I like war heroes that didn't get caught and just stuff like that, really grates these people the wrong way. And I don't think there, is, I, generally speaking, military people tend to be on the right but I don't necessarily think there's a lot of love for this guy. And if something like that were to happen, you have to remember, um, if you're in the Australian Armed Forces, you take an oath to the Queen. (laughs) Americans do not take an oath to the President. They take an oath to the Constitution. And it would not surprise me if in the weeks before or right after the election, an email is sent out from, you know, certain uh, high-ranking military officials reminding people that their oath is to the U.S. Constitution. Just something simple like that uh, as kind of a reminder. And I, I, would, be, I would be shocked. I, I don't even know how you declare martial law nationwide in the U.S. I don't know what that means. We don't have enough. All of our troops are overseas. I mean, what are they gonna do? Uh, even the National Guard units are simply not enough to, to do that. And lest you forget, we have an armed citizenry, (laughs) a well-armed citizenry. So that would be very tough.
0: You do. And and that's something else I've been really interested in um, during this riot um, uh, uh, episode. Like I'm surprised at how few people have lost their lives as a result of the riots uh, with the armed citizenry that you have despite the best attempts of that guy in Salt Lake City with his bow and arrow yesterday. Um, And over the years, when I've done interviews with American, um, quote-unquote, gun nuts and asked them why they uh, have their weapons, they're always talking about using it to defend themselves against a corrupt government, et cetera, et cetera. You know, if this isn't the government that you have the gun to protect yourself against, I don't know what is. And when you have these sorts of riots, I'm just surprised there aren't more people out there armed to the teeth just taking shots at each other. Why do you uh, think the levels of killing are as low as they are? Why are, the, why are these riots more violent and greater loss of human life?
1: Well, I can, I can say in Minneapolis that no one attacked or firebombed residential buildings, thankfully. It was only businesses that were attacked. Um, Second, there's a massive divide in the US. I think this is the primary red-blue divide between urban and rural people. Um, Urban people don't tend to have guns, not to the degree that you're gonna see people in a rural area. I grew up in a small town, and my dad had, we had, I don't know, six, seven guns different things. You know, I, I had a, sh- I technically had a gun that my grandfather left me in his will. It was a 12 gauge shotgun and I would use it. We, you know, deer hunting was a rite of passage. Uh, that was the only time we ever did anything with it. Uh, I think my dad used it occasionally to go, uh, duck hunting or goose hunting. Um, but they were tools. And so you grow up and, and you're just accustomed to that. And if you live in a city, um, your only experience with a gun will be someone shooting someone. There's no other reason for it. So I don't think there are a lot of guns floating around in a lot of cities. Most people simply do not have them. Um, and, and a lot of the gun nuts are not living in these cities. So they they have it for a, a thing that is theoretical and probably not actually going to, to take place.
0: Really? I'm shocked by that. I mean, the impression that I get, again, from just media consumption over here is that uh, every American city is full of gun stores and people are all buying guns to protect themselves from against home invasion or smaller uh, cities. I,
1: so where I live, I'm trying to think I cannot think of a gun store in the city
0: of Minneapolis. I'm sure one probably does exist, but I cannot think of it. Um, Well, I go to Chris's hometown of Cedar city in Southern Utah, which is a lot smaller. It's a small, yeah, it's a smaller community. 20,000, 25,000 population. I go to Walmart there and I can buy semi-automatic weapons at the fucking Walmart.
1: Yeah. It, it, like I said, it's a big difference. You can't find a gun shop in New York. You can't find it in uh, Los Angeles. There's a lot of places where you just can't easily do that. Now, if you were to go to Houston, I think, or Dallas, it's probably going to be a lot easier because hmm. the culture is different. But yeah, it, I've... But what about mail order? Guy, you
0: can buy guns via mail order too over there.
1: Right? Uh, yeah, I I don't... Not sure exactly how that works. Or, or you just, you do go to town. I mean, if you wanted to buy a gun, you could just drive 20 miles and, you know, you're in a, What's town? In a rural area.
0: Oh, right. Okay, so you uh, go, go outside a, of Minneapolis. Drive out, yeah, it. Just, right.
1: Yeah, just go to Walmart in a suburb and you could maybe find something there.
0: right. Uh, so it's right, not okay. hard. Yeah. You're just yeah. not
1: going to get it here. Uh, I was one guy I was talking to lives in St. Paul. He owns a gun, hasn't touched it, he or looked at it. He said in like 10 or 12 years, uh, he brought it out of his safe and put it in a box, and that that was about it. Um, so, yeah, I don't. I mean, most people, if they have a gun in the city, you're just gonna. It's something you just have for protection, and you're not gonna really do anything
0: with it so gary do you think the um coronavirus fears and lockdown um added to the tension that led to this and do you think that the riots are going to lead to uh, a second wave of virus around the country
1: I'm sure it was a contributing factor, but it will be hard to pin how big of it it was. Uh, There may have been a pent up frustration and that people have been stuck at home for two months. Uh, But, you know, if that hadn't happened, would it have been any different if, you know, George Floyd was still killed? Hmm. I'm guessing there probably still would have been a great deal of outrage. Uh, Will there probably be a spike? Yeah, but I've also been, been looking a lot at the, the data. And when you look at, in the U.S., I think half of the deaths have come from people in nursing homes. That's 80% in Spain, 80% in Canada. So it's a huge percentage of those uh, of those cases. If you take those out, the, the number drops dramatically. And at that point, it's worse than the flu, but not dramatically worse than the flu. And... I think you could just cordon off these uh, very high-risk areas like, you know, nursing facilities, hospitals, and make sure that people don't go in there, quarantine those places, and you can get much of the benefit that the lockdown would. Uh, I might have had the coronavirus. I don't know for sure. I came back from Portugal. (laughs) Yeah, I came back from Portugal and I had the flu and I didn't think anything of it. And, you know, a few days later, I was fine. And later, I was like, oh, I wonder if I actually had it. I never got tested or anything, so I don't know. But Yeah.
0: Um. Well, no, so, I mean, the connection between the two is something else Chrissy was talking about last night. And, and you would have a better perspective on this, I think, than most of us because you travel so much. But Chrissy's perspective, and it's mine as well, even, even though I've never lived in the U.S., but I've traveled there a lot, Um there's just a level of social anxiety and 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 um, turbulence. There's, it's it's a visceral feeling I get when I go to America that everyone's just amped up, on alert, looking over their shoulder, more jumpy, more edgy, more touchy than people tend to be here. You know that people here are so fucking laid back most of the time. It's uh, ridiculous. And, you know, I got, a, I got another friend of mine, Chris. He was one of the lead developers at Uber. He's a Brisbane boy, but he was a lead developer at Uber for five or six years and lived in San Francisco and Silicon Valley, worked there for a few years before that too. He came back to Australia permanently a couple of years ago. And um, I remember catching up with him not long after he'd been back. And he said, you know, it took me, uh, took me a month or two to sort of come down off of, the, off of the sort of the adrenaline of being immersed in the American media system. And I really didn't realize until I'd been back here for a couple of months, how full of anxiety I was over there because it just becomes the norm. You're just surrounded by anger, tension, divisiveness. And after being here for back here for a couple of months, I realized all that had gone away. I felt more relaxed, you know, more calmer. I'm sure most Americans who don't get out of the country much kind of uh, uh, don't or aren't aware of the difference between how it works in America and how it works in other parts of the world. What what are your thoughts on that having traveled the world? Are Americans more just generally tense and angry than other citizens?
1: I I think it's a combination of uh, television news and the 24-hour news cycle. And I think a lot of people forget that the news is about making money and the more outrage they provoke, the more social media traffic, the more viewership. Um, you know, there's one thing Donald Trump said where he had actually a good point in that, uh, he's helped the ratings of these media companies. Uh, they've all seen their, their, uh, ratings go up. Um, people love being outraged daily about something on Facebook. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that's a big part of it. And then I think there's a flip side of it as well. When I was in Australia, people, many people would always say, oh, we have uh, tall poppy syndrome. And a lot of countries have this where you have more homogenized populations where becoming too successful is sometimes a problem. I know a fair, quite a few Australians that have moved to the U.S., like the, the percentage of Australians that have come to the U.S. is far greater than the number of Americans I know that have ever gone to Australia. Mm-hmm. And usually they have very good jobs. And uh, a lot of Australians I know basically come to the U.S. to become successful. I think there are yeah. three times as many Canadians working in America as there are Americans in Canada. And that's not on a per capita basis. You do it mm-hmm. per capita, it's a 30 times greater. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a lot of people that, that come to America for... You know, it's cliched, but, you know, opportunity. Uh, mm-hmm. And to, to make an allusion to Rome, one of the thing, reasons I think Rome was successful in its heyday is that they stoked ambition amongst the, the upper class, that you always had to strive for political office, for authoritas, and things like that. And I think there's a, it's not the same, but there's more, uh, it's more dynamic in the U.S. than I see in a lot of other countries. Part of that is the fact that we're not as old as what you see in Europe. Uh, and there's more ambition. There's more, you know, people clawing to achieve. That That's still a big part of the culture. And I think a lot of the reasons why the U.S. is the way it is for good or for, for worse.
0: Yeah. All right. So uh, let's wrap up by you giving me your crystal ball analysis here Gary what do you think is going to happen with this is it just going to people going to vent and then life will just go back to how it was or is something going to change
1: well in the immediate term I am hoping that things will have calmed down in like a week but after that I think individual jurisdictions and I don't know what can be done at the federal level um, they are going this is the biggest Series of, of of you know civil unrest that we've had since the late '60s. It's been half a century since we've seen something like this. So I think there's going to have to be some very serious attempts at reforming policing, like not you know lip service. They're going to have to really change something. Um, and I, th- I think there are some proposals on the table, at least in, in Minnesota, but. Um, that that discussion is going to have to start happening otherwise this will probably just happen again
0: and of course the riots in the mid-60s played a large role i think in lbj passing some of his historic legislation that um brought a higher degree of that fairness happened before, or equality? Before, that happened before
1: a lot. Uh, LBJ, the, the legislation happened first. I think that was like 65 when the, the Civil Rights Bill passed. And then a lot of the major riots occurred in like 1968 and in the early 70s. Um,
0: different, so his legislation the, came before a lot of the worst riots. Right. Well,
1: the assassination of Martin Luther King was the spark of a lot of riots in 1968. Uh, and then... I want to say there were some other riots in the seventies as well. And that's when Nixon was president. Um, but we, we haven't, you know, other than like the, uh, Rodney King verdict, I I can't think of anything major that's happened since then. Um, you know, one of the things I'm scared of is what the hell is going to happen if they acquit this cop or, you know, his case is overturned on appeal or something.
0: God forbid. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And then I just keep thinking about the irony, like everyone, uh, uh, not everyone, but a lot of people on my Facebook feed are talking about getting rid of Trump uh, with the election and bringing in Biden. Of course, Biden, as I've talked about on this show many times, is the guy that pushed through the crime bill in 84 and then again in 94. He was the major sponsor of the crime bill, which has played a large role in the... the, the prison rates of uh, young black men in the United States in the last 30, 40 years. Uh, this is the guy who <laughs> you know, people are pinning their hopes on uh, at being able to, to make America, America uh, a fairer place for the minorities. The guy that played a large role in architecting this in the first place.
1: Yeah, but you gotta remember, Biden is simply the not Trump option. I think he's yeah. gonna be a one-term president you know we've gone through pure, we we've had a weird period in american history where we've had uh three presidents in a row that were two term presidents i don't think that ever happened before and you know before the civil war and in the late 19th century we had a series where we had these one term presidents kind of all in a row and they're all forgettable no one remembers who they are and uh maybe we're due for another one of those where we just go through a string of you know bench warmers uh because we we have had this you know we had 3 in a row and then we had you know the first bush but reagan before that so it was a long stretch with very few people holding the office um i'd be i think who biden biden picks as vice president might not matter in terms of the election but it might certainly matter for the election after that and i think that'll be a very interesting uh pick
0: yeah well it seems that biden might be uh ailing uh he's getting old and his uh, his performance has been a little bit spotty so yeah don't know how many more years he has left in him sort of reminds me of Reagan's (laughs) second term
1: well you know the interesting thing when Reagan got elected he was the oldest president ever at the time and he was 68 and there were all these jokes about how old he was yeah everybody in this election this year uh, not just Biden and Trump but uh, Sanders Warren mm. were well over that, you know, they were in their seventies. So mm. I, I, I kept thinking, okay, we're going to finally have our last baby boomer president and we're still mm. not there. And mm. I have, I, we're, I think we're about the same age. I I, I think we're going to skip gen X. We're just never, there's never going to be a, a gen X president. They're going <laughs> to just go from this to a millennial or something.
0: And I was asking Chrissy last night. Uh, I, although I think I probably played, Paid more attention to the Democratic primaries than she did, but who are the who are the black uh, nominees in the primaries? Um, you had uh, a couple Corey of women, Booker, and Cory uh, Booker. That's who I was trying to remember. last Kamala time. Harris. Yeah, yeah.
1: Um,
0: she's she's actually
1: black slash Indian. Uh, right, one of her parents is Indian. Tulsi Gabbard is Samoan slash Indian, right? Um, yeah, Cory Booker, and then uh who is the guy? Who's the former governor of Massachusetts? Devin Patrick or Deval Patrick? Uh, he um, he didn't get anywhere. He like I announced even it. hear and, about uh,
0: him. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, I mean, it's, I think it's um, just bizarre that again you don't have a. Uh, 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 an African-American person uh, as the nominee for the Democrats?
1: I think the Democrats are surprised more than anyone else. I think, you know, the, the, the thing that Obama did is when he ran, he never ran or even mentioned being the first black president. He ran a very inclusive race, going to a lot of states, had a very general message of hope, and he never just played up to uh, being the black candidate. And that is why I think he got so many white people to vote for him. Um, the Democratic Party now is very much into uh, intersectionality, which is a an electoral losing strategy because you need to build a coalition, which means bringing in people from different groups, not splitting people apart into, into smaller groups. Kristen Gillibrand, who is the senator from New York, ran for president, and that was in her announcements, like, you know, intersectionality is the future, and then she went nowhere. Uh, and there's been a lot of studies saying that when people bring this up, it's, it's always a losing proposition. You have to run a wide inclusive race because that's how elections work, right? You need people to vote for you. And uh, that's what Obama did. And I think it was very successful. And he's been saying this since then. He's been, you know, going to Democratic fundraisers, and I don't know if anyone's listening to him.
0: Mm. All right, mate. Well, thanks for coming on and um, having a chat. It's great to get your perspective on these things. Uh, stay safe. I hope you have a quiet night and get a good night's rest. And, um... Keep in touch, man. Let me know what's going on.
1: Uh, Thanks. And, uh, you know, I just got back from a walk. I finished up your uh, last Caligula episode and uh, started on your third Botticelli episode. So, uh, you know, really enjoy the podcast. I've been listening to the Caesar. I've been listening to the Napoleon podcast when you first started it. (laughs) Wow. Because I was listening to podcasts and it was like the only history podcast at the time. And so... The only reason I found out up at the Caesar podcast is I kept the Napoleon podcast in my RSS reader for years. And then there was like, an and I like, I would read, you know, every six months I would check out. Oh, I wonder if they have something. And then I said, you should get uh, Markham on the show or something again to, to talk about stuff. Or, Dude,
0: did you if, talk about you... maybe
1: redoing the Napoleon show with, with Ray?
0: We joke about it. Yeah. Um, Like I I would love to get David on, but every time David and I have tried to have a conversation about American politics in the last five years, it just ends in um, screaming and tears. Um, We are unable to have a uh, reasonable conversation about American politics. Is he on the right or the left or? I assume in the right, if you're on the. He's, 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 he's on the right, but thinks he's on the left. He thinks of himself as a proud Democrat. I am a Democrat. I've been involved in politics my entire life. Um, but he's really center right. Like he's a uh, he's, uh, Democrat from the 60s. Yeah, he's an old white guy. Who thinks Bernie Sanders is Che Guevara? Um, and anyone left of Bill Clinton is Che Guevara. And uh, cannot accept. We, we, I remember we were in um, we were in Vegas for that the famous Vegas trip a few years ago, and he came down from Toronto, which is where he lives now. For it, and um, we were talking about this is before the Cold War show started, but I was I just come up with the idea of doing a Cold War series, and I was talking to him about being a host on it with Ray and I. So the three of us would do it together. I was trying to give him some, something to do because he was, had retired and he's a little bit bored. And, um, you know, I started talking about the evidence that uh, the U S dropped the bombs on Japan, not to end the war, but just to test it out. And also to use it as a threat against the Soviets. And uh, it basically ended in tears. He could not hear that as an argument and, uh, um, and, and accept that there was evidence for it. It was just, it's, it does not compute in his brain that America is not the shining light on the hill. He cannot see America in any other way than the great hope of humanity.
1: You know, I, I've listened to a lot of what you said over the years, and I usually agree with you on the facts, but sometimes uh, the interpretation would be a little different. I think that certainly probably went into the, the decision oh. calculus. If you, um, if you ever go to the island of Saipan, in the Northern Marianas Islands. That was the first bit of Japanese territory that the U.S. took in World War II. And uh, they kept fighting and they pushed, That were, so there were Japanese civilians on the island and they pushed them north. And uh, the civilians started uh, killing their children and jumping off cliffs. And they filmed this. They, were, they had a film crew there. And the, the film got sent back to Truman. And uh, I was watching a documentary on this. And uh, this is where... This plus the Battle of Okinawa was a big part of the decision-making for dropping the bomb. So was it sending a signal to the Soviets? I'm sure, I'm sure it was, uh, because they were probably at that point thinking about what's going to happen next you know, at the end of the war. But I do also think there was an element of uh, ending it as soon as possible. And, and, and you know, one of the histories I read is the reason why we had to drop two bombs is because the Japanese didn't think we had a second one.
0: After have you heard my one. cold have you heard my cold war episodes on this? No, I've
1: only listened to some uh, of them. I'm not going
0: to I'm not going to repeat the 12 hours that I did backing up my statement on the Cold War show but
1: No, but the thing is I don't I I I don't disagree that that was probably part of the calculus uh because lord knows by that time but I don't think it was the sole reason behind it.
0: No, but there's just I, there's way too much evidence to demonstrate that the america and the united kingdoms uh military and political leaders were all very aware by august 1941 that the japanese wanted to surrender were trying to surrender were out of options and as soon as stalin declared war on japan which he had agreed with truman he would do uh they would surrender Once they knew they had the Russians on them as well, it was all over. And uh, Truman got in the bombs a couple of days before Stalin had told him he was going to declare war. Instead of just waiting to see a couple of days what would happen, he didn't want the Soviets to be able to take credit for that uh, and a bunch of other things. But uh, there's just too much evidence to uh, support that side of the story for me to give Truman the the benefit of the doubt, unfortunately.
1: Another one is like uh, US forces overseas. I mean, we have have a lot of them, we have people everywhere. But I think that a big element of it is, uh, especially in developed countries like Australia, is a a lot of it is them outsourcing their defense to the US. Um, That if you look at what they spend on defense, especially Western Europe, uh, it's well below probably what it should be because they know that the last line of defense will always be the United States. So they kind of skimp on it and they just let the U.S. handle it. So it's not that the U.S. is imposing our willness I mean, there aren't tanks on the streets of Brisbane and we're not imposing our own PMs in Australia. Um, and, and I think there's a latent, and you're seeing it a little with Trump, there's this latent isolationism that's always been in the American psyche that I think mm. is going to start coming back where it used to be, Oh, we have to have our troops everywhere. We're America. And next it's mm. going to be, Oh, let's get our troops out of everywhere. Why are we helping these people?
0: Uh, well, the reason I would, I, I would and do argue in my cold war series, the reason you have bases all around the world <clears throat> is a, because it helps you enforce the American economic block and B a lot of Americans make a lot of money out of your military industrial complex so it's a very profitable exercise somebody uh, is profiting from all of these bases and it's not just the people we normally think it is it's not just the weapons manufacturers but it's the people that provide the uniforms it's the people who provide the software it's the people who provide the pepsi and the food and the medical supplies There's Thousands, Tom's guide uh, did a study on this a few years ago. There are thousands and thousands of American businesses who derive most of their annual revenue from the Pentagon because they're the American military.
1: Don't deny it, but what I'm saying is with the exception of a few places like Okinawa, like we had very large bases in the Philippines and after uh, Marcos left, they, they kicked us out. Uh, it can be done. And most places don't kick us out. And I think the reason is, is because we provide, uh, like I said, we're the last line of defense. It requires them to spend less. And we're probably going to defend the status quo, whatever that is, hmm. you know, if it's in Colombia or, or whatever. Uh, so there's a reason for, for them to let us do it uh, if, if, you know, there were people in the streets telling us to get rid of the naval base in Australia, we'd probably get rid of it, but that doesn't happen.
0: <laughs> All right. Well, that's, that's another two hour conversation, Gary, and I got to go do another, i got to go do a QAV show in a minute. All right. I appreciate your time. Man. It was really great to, uh, Is that your investing show? To chat yeah, it's Is the that investing it? show. Please, please
1: explain a socialist investor.
0: Well, uh, yeah, I can. A socialist investor is somebody who believes that, well, not just socialism, but communism is probably uh, a better way of organizing uh, society, but accepts the fact that he lives in a capitalist society and needs to pay rent and put food on the table. So short-term needs to make money, but long-term would really love to move society towards something that's a little bit more equitable.
1: When the the Soviet Union fell, uh, then Saturday Night Live, they had a guy, A. Whitney Brown, who did Weekend Update, and he yeah, said, no, who would have thought the fatal flaw with communism is that there was no money in it?
0: <laughs> good one, good one, yeah, well. One day we will get to Star Trek and there will be no need for money and we'll just look after each other. But until then, I need to, after doing podcasting on the smell of an oily rag for 15 years, I figured I'm 50 this year. I need to uh, prepare, start preparing for my inevitable retirement and or incapacitation or death. Unfortunately, Hmm. All right, Mike, good to talk to you. Stay safe and uh, yeah, I'll follow you on Facebook and uh, follow your updates, which have been terrific. All right, talk to you later. Thanks, buddy. Take care, man. Bye. would we be without our safe, familiar American bullshit? Land of the free, home of the brave, the American dream. All men are equal, justice is blind, the press is free. Your vote counts. Business is honest, the good guys win. The police are on your side. God is watching you. Your standard of living will never decline. And everything is going to be just fine.